This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 169 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hey. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're going to be talking about managing multiple projects. Now, this was something that was suggested by Jonathan. Is there some context for this, Jonathan, or just something you've uh, been was- asked about? It's something that I've been asked about recently, and I thought it was a really interesting topic. I don't really think about it that much, and it's not the kind of thing we usually talk about, but it's pretty important. So it's one of those invisible things. So I thought it'd make a good show topic. Sounds good to me. Find out. So when you're talking about managing multiple projects, is that like multiple projects within the same time period? So they've got some kind of time overlap over weeks yes. or months or within the would- same day or what? Yep, that's what I was picturing. So, and especially because, at least for me, it's a little weird because I have lots of different kinds of projects. So it's easy to get really busy on one kind of project, like a development project. And those are fairly novel for me. I don't do them very often. And then just get so focused on it that I forget to sort of ping my more advisory type clients or someone I'm doing a report for just to let them know that the work is progressing on their stuff. And there have been times when I've been like, oh yeah, this client paid me money and I haven't thought about them in two days. It's a very unsettling feeling. Yeah, so like, what are the systems that we put in place to prevent ourselves from making that kind of a slip and just having that uncomfortable, out-of-control feeling? But maybe more importantly, for people who are still billing by the hour, how to ensure that you know, you've got various three, four, five, six projects going on, you're billing by the hour, how to let them know whether or not the meter's running because if you don't stay in touch with them, they're going to assume it's running or they're going to wonder if it's running. And if you let a week go by like that, that could be anywhere from 40 to 80 hours billable time. And they're just like, what's going on? You know, money is flying out the door. We want to know what's going on. So what are the tools that we all use to make sure we're keeping clients in the loop? You know, because a lot of stuff we do is kind of a black box for them. How often do you or, and I'll chime in in a minute, how often do we find ourselves doing the, you know, the multi-client or multi-project timeframes? Speaking for myself, I always have at least two clients. So, you know, for the past 10 years or so, maybe six years, I've had at least one retainer client, probably two at a time. And they typically, there's typically something that I owe them. You know, they're expecting me to do, you know, put together some research for an upcoming phone call or putting together a a teardown of their code base or something. So I'll have one or two of those going and I like to keep my hand in development a little bit. So I'll be doing side projects or sort of passion projects that I may still be getting paid for that are development oriented. And so those need a lot of attention and handholding. So I almost always have at least three going. If I look at my desktop, which is where I keep all of my project folders so that I'm constantly in my face, what I need to be working on every day, uh, or at least every week, you know, I've got like 14 things going on and that, you know, it's a little bit too much to keep in your head. You need to outsource it to places besides your head, or at least I do. Yep. I almost never do multiple clients at once anymore. I used to do it. I would, you know, was doing hourly, had a budget of, you know, so many hours in the week and had so many hours per client in the month. And so I would like 
okay, I can slot this guy in here, this person over here, this group here. And I remember some days I would literally work on three different clients code, two hours here, an hour, a half here, you know, whatever, probably four, maybe five years ago, I decided like, this is not working. It's so inefficient. And at the time I was working in Redmine. So it was one actual code base, like one Git repository. So switching from one client to another client was like actually quite a bit of work. I couldn't just like walk away from one folder. Like I had actually switched my environment around. And so I started just basically, you know, making clients where if I'm working on your stuff, I'm working on just your stuff for today and basically did that for a while and then eventually changed it. So instead of like blocking it out by the day, I blocked it out to the week. So it'd be like, you know, this week I'm just working on client A, next week client B. And now that's actually transitioned to like, I'm just doing weekly billing. So I have one client for this week. I'm only working for them, barring like emergency work for a client, like server on fire type emergency. And it's been so nice. Like there's no switching costs. If you look at over a month or a couple month period, I'm working with multiple clients, but they're never concurrently. They're, you know, there's always a, you know, starts on Monday, ends on Friday type break for me. Yeah, I definitely like that for the kinds of things that I'm doing. I'm slowly winding up doing less and less client work. And so for me, the projects are my own projects. So we're talking about Angular Remote Conf or uh, Rails Clips or working on devchat.tv and doing some development there or, you know, working on connecting with podcast listeners and things like that. And so those are all in my head, different projects. And so I just make sure that when I'm planning out my week, that they all get the time they need. And so I wind up just blocking out time in my calendar. Now, usually there's one project that will dominate a week, but there's inevitably some of the other stuff going on because the other stuff just doesn't sleep. And it's more than one customer on that stuff. You know, so for the podcast, it's, you know, the listeners and the hosts for the Rails clips, it's the subscribers. For the conference, it's the conference attendees and the speakers. And so I can't just let those slide because my communication has to happen with more than just one person or one set of people. Now I am picking up the odd client here or there and I just fit them in with the other projects. So I'll schedule the time and make sure that they're getting their money's worth out of it. Right. And that's kind of like how I was saying where I will like this week, I'm actually not doing client work. I'm working on content marketing. That's my week focus. And then I think it's Mondays and Fridays. I have, I think I talked about it last time or a couple of times ago, maybe an hour, hour and a half open. And that's where I pick up like the minor stuff. Like you're talking about Chuck, like stuff where you have to kind of continuously stay up on like for conference speakers and stuff. Even if it's not a client project, I still have a primary project each week so I can get in and focus. Yep. Look, I've always also got a whole bunch of things going on. And for many years, it was juggling a lot of clients at the same time, doing project work. And that was just constant triage. That was just constant. It it was really bad looking back because basically I was always feeling like I was in this grind. I owe so many people so many things. And they were also dissatisfied, I think, to some degree because like they were happy to work with me. I mean, they kept coming back, but I think they wanted a little more of my attention and a little more time with me. So the fact that I'm now doing mostly training means that A, my days are blocked off very clearly, most of them. And then it's sort of in between either at night or when I'm not training on a certain day. Like last week I was, I was working from home three days. I wasn't training and that was great. It gave me a chance to catch up with some of the other clients. And I've tried to keep that other work to a relative minimum so that, you know, one doesn't sort of interfere with the other. And I'm sort of good at that. The problem is I still take on a little too much of the non-training stuff. A little more than I should, especially right now. Like, I've got a bunch of things going on with Linux Journal, and I've got a few of my own things, but I'm hoping in the next month or so it'll stabilize a little more. But definitely, I think what Jonathan said about 
be in touch with people. I learned this lesson a very hard way a number of years ago. I was working on this project and I thought everything was going great. They weren't complaining, right? If they're not complaining, it must be terrific. <laughs> and basically after about a month, the, the guy in charge of the project calls me and says, why haven't we heard from you? I said, well, I thought everything was great. He said, no, no, your job is to call me and make sure I'm satisfied. I am not satisfied. And he was really upset and really read me the riot act. And I have to say, he was right. And I learned a ton from that, that no communication means they assume you're not doing any work or you're not doing any work that's of value or you just don't care about them. Right. That's an important thing because when I do weekly stuff for clients, I talk to them on Monday, talk to them on Friday, and then usually we'll do something on Wednesday. So it's every other day. But if I don't hear from them every day, whether it's like an email and they reply to, or maybe if we're, you know, if it's a more technical client, they're using GitHub, like they reply to a comment or an issue in there and have some kind of touch point every day, I'll actually make it a point, like at the end of the day to kind of reach out and say, Hey, you know, in case you haven't been following what's been going on, you know, here's the stuff I finished, you know, here's what's working on next, you know, just kind of like a status update. And I know it kind of sounds very, you know, very corporate, very sucky, but it's, you know, usually it's a short informal email and it just keeps them like, okay, Eric's moving forward. It's just, he hasn't talked to us because there's been no problems. He's just been busy working on stuff. And every client I talk to and do that for, like they love it, they value it so much. It kind of lets me not have a project management system if I didn't want it. Like I still use it to track my own stuff, but one of my more recent clients, like they have an account, but they don't log into it. They don't use it. But by having like, by forcing myself to kind of go to where they want the communication, they're still getting the benefit of it. There's something nice about that end of day email too. Just mentally, it has like a sort of, when I'm in a, a development project like that and I do that at the end of the day, it's like, oh, look at all the stuff I accomplished. Like I go through my commit messages and I'm like, okay, here are all the things I accomplished today. I didn't have any problems. Like you said, wow, I got something done, you know? Right. Like a, kind of a nice feeling. Yeah, the end of week one is, it's great. I'll pull on high level, like here's the features I did. And when you put it up for a week, it's actually a you know, significant amount. And then you know, this, it's actually September 1st when we're recording this. And I just made an invoice for a client where they had you know an entire month, so four weeks. And my invoice is pulling like what features. I'm like, wow, there's like a huge laundry list of features I built for them. And it's like, okay, there's the value I produce. Therefore this invoice amount, it makes a lot of sense. But by having like the daily, weekly, and then, you know, the monthly for the invoice, like kind of links it all together and kind of, you know, firms up the value I'm producing, firms up, you know, the justification for my rate, all that stuff. But it feels nice to me to see like, okay, you know, a month ago, they didn't have all of this stuff. Now they do. So I had a contract that kind of, I thought it went well, but, uh, you know, I've kind of figured out after talking to the client that it didn't go as well as I thought. And yeah, something like that, where I was sending them some kind of report every week and saying, this is what we got done. This is what we're going to get done next week really would have made a difference. And I mean, we were doing weekly billing and they were paying it up front. We've talked about that structure before, but they would have been happy to pay the next invoice for the next week, knowing that they're going to get, you know, a similar amount of work done that week. So does it ever come up though, Eric? You know, you're saying that you focus on one project per week. Does it ever come up where you're working on two projects in a week? Actually, that came up two or three weeks ago. Basically, what happened, I had my main client, you know, the primary client schedule for the week. A client I worked on a couple of weeks back came to me with kind of some detailed, like almost scoping questions, but it wasn't quite like, let's down to another roadmap. And then the client I worked on the week before came back with a rather severe bug. I mean, it wasn't server on fire bug, but it was like, a, this impacts our business communication pretty significantly. And so in that case, what I did is I still worked on, you know, the primary client, but I like, had to schedule, you know, after hours dev for the bug. And then I had to push back the scoping stuff until, like I said, like I have a Monday, Monday and Friday 
openings. I pushed that back till Friday and kind of gave them some time and got on the phone for things like half hour, 45 minutes or so. But that week I was extremely stressed, not so much of like the time, but like the emotional tension. Like I was like, oh man, like, did I really screw up? Do I really have all these problems? Like, are, are my clients getting mad at me now? And, you know, it wasn't anything. Like everyone was all happy and fine with it. They were just, you know, reporting concerns and stuff, but it was kind of a, you can ask my wife, it was a very emotional week for me. And I was like up and down every day. I think that was probably like one of the worst weeks I've had in probably a year, maybe 18 months. The last time I think it happened was like, you know, typical launch week where I was actually doing like a week and a half worth of work in one week. That's kind of an important point, especially if you do weekly stuff is to kind of build buffers into your schedule. If you do weekly billing, don't commit to doing 40 hours of work that week. Do 30, 20, 25, you know, do enough. So if, if other things come up, you have a little bit of wiggle room to get, you know, emergencies taken care of. Or, you know, if your laptop dies and you lose a day, you can recover it by, you know, the rest of the week, even if you have to put in some night work or something. Don't make it like, you know, a razor blade. Like if you fall off, you're dead type thing. Yeah. One thing that I'm looking at is picking up a retainer client for a spree commerce store. And so I'm trying to figure that out as far as, you know, having it fit in because it's only going to be a handful of hours, you know, in any given month, but that could fall into any week during the month. And so, you know, just figuring that out and fitting it in is something that I'm a little concerned about as far as just planning my week and doing my managing the other projects I have. So I think that could get interesting, especially if I pick up another client where I'm, you know, sort of working them full time. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is commitment management. I mean, you know, what are you actually committing to? Can you fulfill the commitments? Yep. If you don't, what happens? I've talked about this story a while back, but there's a, can't remember the book name, but they had, they kind of gave you the idea of, you know, your life is a puzzle, you know, six piece, nine piece, whatever puzzle. And on each piece is one of the big commitments in your life. So it's like, it could be health, family, you know, a certain big project you're working on, you know, marketing for your business. And you only have six or I use six, you can use nine, I think, but you only have six that you can do. So if you actually want to pick up a new client that's significant, you have to drop one of those. And it might be you're dropping time with your family. You're dropping your health for a little while, but you have to actually like have that give and take. And I think visualizing that and actually understanding that, you know, if you're okay, but you have to pick up this new client and it's going to suck up all the rest of your time. Like, what are you giving up in that? I have perhaps an interesting counterpoint to that, which is that when I pick up new clients, most of them are retainer based or some sort of advisory capacity. So it's an indeterminate amount of time that they're going to take up since I'm not filling by a time unit. So I could actually have, you know, I've got 14 projects on my desktop, you know, some of them are personal stuff and side projects and that sort of thing, but at least six of them are paying clients. And, you know, a retainer type of approach, which, um, you know, to me is not a prepayment for hours. To me, that's not really a retainer. It's more of a maintenance thing or just hourly, really. Mm -hmm. But if it's a true retainer, like they are paying almost like an insurance policy to be able to get me to pick up the phone at a moment's notice because they have some kind of urgent decision that needs to be made on something strategic that I'm an expert at. And they want the reassurance that they can get access to me, you know, ASAP. The puzzle piece analogy doesn't resonate with me because, you know, I could handle quite a few clients like that because there's not like a, it doesn't automatically mean 40 hours a week or 20 hours a week or something like that. But I do run the risk that something could happen where, like I do try to keep it to a, a dull roar, if you will. You know, I try to keep it to two serious retainer clients because it has happened to me where they're just like, look, you have to fly to Berlin tomorrow. 
because <laughs> we're gonna have yeah we're gonna have an all hands on deck with forty people from the company and we have to have you here. It's gonna be like I can't remote in. It's gonna be a really emotional meeting and having somebody on conference call is not gonna cut the mustard. So, so, so you're if saying that, if you get two of those calls, you have to be yeah, in Berlin and Miami at the same time. Yeah, so that's the thing. Usually I just try and set the expectations around that, like, you know, the number two person. Basically, both retainer clients will be made aware of each other and, you know, before they sign on the dotted line. So it's like, look, this virtually never happens that somebody meets me at the last minute notice to, like, fly somewhere. But if it does, my responsiveness might be a little bit screwed up and I will let you know if it happens. You know what I mean? Like, I'll check in with you. If, Mm -hmm. If it turns out I have to fly to Berlin for client A, I'll let client B know that, hey, I'm going to be in the air for, you know, 16 hours over the next 48 hours. So I'm not going to be as responsive as normal. If you have anything critical, let me know now and I'll check in with you at a layover and see if there's anything critical or whatever. But I feel like the overall takeaway that we're presenting to people is that, you know, it's all about communications. Like more communications is better than fewer communications and communicating expectations and giving people updates and just keeping everybody in the loop is critical. Yeah, I was going to say with the retainer stuff, I mean, that's one of the few downsides to them is, you know, the the scope, you know, what the amount of work you put in, your time requirements, like that's, you don't actually know what that might be. And I mean, for you, Jonathan, you'd probably figure out like what your number is. But if you started going out and signing, like if you had 50 retainer clients right now, I pretty much guarantee you had probably one of those calls every month. Like it's just so much going on. And I think it's just, you have to look at not so much the commitments of like, you know, client A, client B, client C, but like how much do I have as far as retainers? Like how much is my time or schedule at risk, you know, as a portfolio or whatever? But yeah, I mean, communication is key for everything. Like if I'm very open with my clients saying like I have another client scheduled or I have someone who they're willing to bump or move around. So I don't like tell them who they are, but they know like I'm working with a couple other people and I've gotten stuff to move around, especially if there's a problem, like a very big problem. They need me immediately even if someone else booked that time, you know, I've gotten a client to kind of shuffle stuff and it's been nice and they know that I'm going to come back and I'm going to, you know, go above and beyond if I need to, to, to get stuff resolved. Yeah. I mean, I tell my clients that also in, in many ways, like I say, listen, I'm busy. You know that I'm busy, but if I'm working with you and you have an emergency, I'm going to help you. And it might mean that you have to wait two hours until I'm out of a meeting. But if you call me or leave a message, you are a priority and I will get back to you. I don't think it's ever backfired. Like there's never been a point when I just could not get back to people. And usually also their emergencies are not necessarily that big of emergencies. They just need someone to talk to and walk them through a process. Um, or talk but, them off the ledge. I run into that a right. lot where it's like panic, panic, panic. And it's like, look, you can still get paid. Everything's okay. Yeah. This one little thing is suboptimal and here's what we're going to do. Fix it. And then they're like, okay. And then you can take a week to fix it and they're fine. Right. A lot of it is the communication, almost like the psychology of it. Let them know that there's someone who's in their corner who's going to help them out. And, excuse me, and, they'll, and they'll often be like very happy about that. Yep. I guess there have been a few, very few occasions when someone called and said, systems aren't working. You need to fix it now. And there was one time like I sat down on a park bench and used my Wi-Fi, my cellular modem to log into their server and fix something. And they were ecstatic. And it was a one-time thing. Yeah, just being able to send them a message back that's like, I'm on it, is yep. usually enough to calm everybody down. Like, we have a monitoring system on a, a client project that pumps sort of emergency messages into a Slack channel that everybody gets notified on. And it has happened twice now that I've been literally camping in the woods, and that thing has gone off. We call it the canary. So, like, canary cheap chirps. <laughs> 
you know, and I pull out the phone and I'm like, anybody around, you know, and the CEO can go into the Slack channel and see that I'm on it. You know, it's like, I might not be able to deal with it, but I'm aware of it. We can do some diagnostic stuff, even on a phone and uh, have some kind of prognosis. And that almost always calms everybody down. Well, you said, John, I mean, I've been relatively skeptical about Slack. It's like, yeah, you know, it's a it's chat system, but how different could it really be? Now, a growing number of projects that I'm on use Slack, especially one of them, I found that when there are server problems, instead of calling me, instead of emailing, whatever, they'll just put on the Slack channel and say, hey, what's going on? And I have to say, Slack's interface is really slick, Slack slick. The fact that I can respond very easily from my phone, much better than I could say on Skype or even via email, has been something that really convinced me that it's a great tool for that. Yeah, big fan. It's hard to describe to people who don't use it because it does sound exactly like IRC or IM or something. But there's something about it that is kind of magical. So should we maybe segue into tools we use to keep these communications organized? Yeah. Okay. Eric mentioned earlier that, you know, he sets things up so that he goes to where their clients are most comfortable. And I kind of do the opposite because usually my experience is my clients are most comfortable in email, which is a horrible place to have important information because you don't have visibility into everybody's inbox and it makes searching and threading really difficult. It's not compartmentalized topic wise. So I use Basecamp for everything, even if, even if it's me and one person from the client. I'll still force them to use Basecamp because what I say is, look, I don't want anything to get lost in my inbox. My inbox is full of lots of different things that are not associated with this project. I want everything in one place so that we can both easily find any conversation that we've had. And the exception to that, for real-time communications, we use Slack. But I don't use that with everyone. I just use that with usually bigger projects or somebody that has uh, like 24-7 access to me for a retainer. But Basecamp has really been a godsend for me. So there are issues that I have with Basecamp. The flip side of it is that Basecamp is something that is much more approachable, I found, for clients. I tend to favor something like Trello or Kanban Flow or, you know, something that's a little bit harder core project management developer style. And the issue is, is that I can never get my clients to use them. And, you know, if you use something like Asana or Basecamp or something where it looks like a tool that they can kind of understand and it, you know, it's pretty and it has a nice styling to it and stuff like that, then yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I keep going back and forth. In a lot of cases, I've just used the other tool and told them that that tool is the kind of the canonical place for stuff and that if it doesn't make it in there, then it didn't happen. And I've had that come back to bite them or me once or twice. And I can so- see that you put it in an email and it never made its way over to the other system. And so it got lost in the mix or, you know, we never completely agreed on it. And then you expected it to get done. And since we never completely agreed on it, it didn't get into the canonical system. And so, yeah, I can definitely see where base camp or something like that would work out nicely, but yeah, I tend to prefer the other ones. It's just, I've never been able to get a client to use it. I totally agree with that. Like base camp's not perfect. You know, it's not the air quotes best project management system out there, but clients, for whatever reason, they are willing to use it and they can even use it kind of via email. They just respond to the notifications in their email, but it puts everything into Basecamp. 37 Signals kind of nailed that like adoption thing. For me, that's the most important thing. It's more about being able to keep track of communications than it is about having Gantt charts or that sort of thing. So it's not perfect, but it works. It's the only one I've found that actually works for me. 
Yeah, and see, I've done a lot of work with project management, you know, through Redmine. Like I did a lot of what are the competitors doing? Is there, you know, interesting ideas and all that? And you really quickly discover that project management is, especially around applications, it's one of those systems that it almost always has to reflect the organization that's using it and the communication lines that are there. So, you know, if you have a very, very corporate, formal company you're working with, like a client, they're going to want a very corporate formal PM system. Like that's the, like almost the mm. only thing they're going to adopt. If it's a very startup, agile, ad hoc, they're going to adopt that kind of PM system. And the problem I ran into is just as a consultant, I work with so many different clients that I would have to have like Basecamp, you know, a Redmine or Chile project install, Trello. I'd have to have all these different ones and have to build processes for those in order to get clients. And so that's why like I'll go to what the client wants, but we mostly fall back on email. And then what I'll do is I'll say like, okay, since you don't have something, we're going to use, you know, my Chili project install and we're just going to use these limited features of it. And like I said earlier, if they don't use that, then I'll kind of come out of that, give them kind of updates and all that and proceed of I'm going to do X unless you tell me otherwise. And it's worked pretty good. Kind of a really interesting way is I use email and then I'll have a wiki page as the nautical, like here's what we're working on. Like here's the ordered list of stuff. And then you know, the client can update it, they can request changes, and all of that links into deeper into the system that they can, you know, they can reassign stuff, change schedules, all that. But uh I mostly try to manage it for them just because, you know, getting them to adopt it, you know, especially if it's like a, a large process, a heavy system, like that's just a struggle half the time. You know, if you can show them a little bit of benefit of using it, you might be able to get them hooked. And email integration is like a key part for that. I think over the years, I've mostly, truth be told, used email for communication with clients. But the ones where we had more communication needs, where there were multiple people, where it was not just them and me, like one of them and, and one of me, but when I had people on my staff and they had people on their staff and there was communication going every which way, then having like a ticket tracker or something like Redmine or even uh, for a while we used Pivotal Tracker, also different things like that, they definitely helped a lot. Uh, definitely helped to communicate, know who was working on what, when. Definitely a good thing. But I still kept a lot of the communication going via email. And then I was wondering, you know, well, why do I have all this email? Why am I always uh, overloaded? Which I still am, but in a different way now. And so by moving things into some sort of communication system, it definitely helps. Now, a big project I'm working on, we've been using Basecamp. And I've used Basecamp over the years. I'm not a big fan of it. I think it works okay, but the good thing is it's dead simple and easy for people to use, even if they're not technical. And I found that the non-tech folks on the project I'm working on, they just use it and they're happy with it. And they find an easier time of that than, say, working with GitHub issues, which they figured out, but it's not quite as natural for them. What I find, though, is now we've got this multiplicity of communication channels. We've got email, and we've got GitHub, and we've got Basecamp, and that we've got Slack. And trying to keep track of where things are going is, is kind of annoying. And I think one or, one or two of you guys said that there has to be like a canonical place where things go. And I think we might need to declare that at some point because otherwise it's just going to continue to get out of hand. Yep. Yeah, that having multiple systems for communications is a disaster waiting to happen because you've nowhere to search it. So you're like, I know we had a conversation somewhere, but I don't know where. So, yeah. and I would We've never- had that a little bit. We've had that a little bit. We've also had like, if there's a question, they'll put it, like, they'll send me an email, and they'll put it in Basecamp, and they'll put it in Slack, and yeah. they'll be like, oh, I'm filing a ticket also. And then, <laughs> like, then I discover that I have all these new messages and all these systems, and trying to figure out, did I respond? Did I not respond? is really kind of annoying. 
That's hard. It's like overwhelming, especially if you do have notifications set up. It gets, it's like, it's a nightmare. I find it's easier to just have one and to force my clients to use it. And that's why I like Basecamp because they're usually happy to do it. Yep. I actually have a keyboard shortcut set up so that if somebody emails me something directly, I just type two letters and it responds to them. Please put this in Basecamp. Send. <laughs> nice. I like wow. it. I'm trying to figure out how this would fit into my system. You know, you've kind of talked me into at least looking at Basecamp again and just figuring out how this will all go as far as my workflow goes and stuff. The other thing is, is that I've had the same issues with my assistants. We used Redbooth for a while, but it was just Mandy and I, and a lot of our process is informal. And so by putting the information into Basecamp, I can see that that would also work because it has the built-in documentation system and stuff. And so... You know, I can put all the stuff in there and then just make it work and I don't have to maintain anything. So I can get documentation on different processes and stuff for my business. That's what I'm saying. It's like you got to find what works for you and you know, your clients. And, you know, I'm in the middle of repositioning. So for me, I'm actually going to have like a more standard client base that I'm going to be working with. And so, you know, I might find out that like, look, you know, using, we'll say Basecamp because it's been mentioned a lot. Using Basecamp for me now is like going to solve 95% of my problems. So I might move that as like my main system and not be as flexible and just say like, look, you know, when working with Shopify shops on app development, Basecamp's the best bet for everyone. So that's, I'm forcing you to use that. Could be that because I'm so generalist, like I've one client we're, uh, we're using GitHub issues. One, we're using a chili project install. One, we're using mostly email with, like I said, like a wiki page. Another we use, what's it called? Rally, which is just garbage, but oh. you know, so like it depends on the client. And so like I'm, all of these are all, yeah, exception of two, all of them are different industries, different focuses. I'm building different, like, kind of apps, like, you know, it's a SaaS app versus an internal app versus just a, an online app. And so, like, you know, maybe as you get positioned or you kind of refine down on, like, here's, you know, the main type of client I work with, your processes can get streamlined and even your tools can get more streamlined. I'm going to change the subject here a little bit with managing multiple projects as people get overwhelmed. Is there a good way to avoid getting overwhelmed other than just good planning? Yeah, and I think you have to get overwhelmed a couple times and then fall back and really understand what overwhelm means for you and what your limits are. I heard a great quote about the word overwhelm the other day, which is that everybody has too much stuff to do, but being overwhelmed, but that's not overwhelmed. Being overwhelmed is not knowing what to do next. So, yeah. and that does happen to me. Every couple of days I'll be like, you know, I'll finish something and I'll be like, ah, now what do I do? And I've got two places to look that tell me what to do when I don't know what to do next. And one is my calendar. It's about 50% scheduled out every week. So about 20, 25 hours per week are blocked out. So I almost certainly have some meeting coming up that I could prepare for. And if I really don't, I go into my undated, you know, when I have free time, do one of these things. I did pick up and I really liked the definition you gave to overwhelmed, which was, I don't know what to do next. Yeah. And so I have two places that I look when I don't know what to do next. The first is my calendar to see what I have upcoming in the next hour, two hours, three hours. And the other is just my to-do list to say, here are six or eight things that are just always on my to-do list. Or not, not always, but I always have six to eight things on a to-do list that aren't specifically applied to a date. And I just do one of those. So I kind of always know what to do next. I keep all of my next steps for every project in one of those two places, and I just do the next one. Very nice. I like that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. 
I keep a to-do list and people get like are shocked. Like I have over a thousand and thirty items on it right now. Like they're like, Oh my God, what do you, how do you know what to do? And I'm like, well, today I have five things this week. I have 40 it's prioritized. I, in this month I have, you know, a few hundred or whatever, like it's all grouped and I review it, you know, daily to weekly to monthly. And I know like today, these are the things I'm working on. So like I might be overwhelmed. If I'm looking at the whole, like, you know, this is what I want to do. But if I'm just looking at what I need to accomplish today or just even like what I need to do the next three minutes, it's pretty easy choice. Like even if there is a choice, sometimes it's like, nope, just next item on the list and move on. Yep. So when you guys say like being overwhelmed is not knowing what to do next, it doesn't mean you're not sure what to do. It means you have so many things and you're not sure which of them to do. Just to clarify that, right? Yeah, decision paralysis. I can't say that word, dang. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got a million things. Everybody's got a million things to do, but when you get paralyzed by it, that's the problem. So you just need to know which one to do next. And sometimes it means just picking one. Yeah, like I do Pomodoro, so it's like 25 minute, five minute break. And one thing I learned at pretty sure it's from Merlin Man is a thing called the dash where especially when I like don't know what to do set my timer for 25 minutes and just start working on the first thing on my list you know do a little bit on that even if it's like two or three minutes and then jump to the next one then jump to the next one and the idea is to do just touch everything you can quickly and some things like they're on your list you've been dreading them for you know days but they only take like five minutes to actually finish and get it off your list and the point of the dash is you just get through stuff and you actually like knock out some items. And at the end of it, you're like, wow, I feel accomplished. You know, maybe I should actually just focus on these larger things. And, you know, it kind of clears a bit of room and space in your head for stuff. I've got a funny real world side story that happened to me this weekend that reminded me of, which is that my brother was moving out of an apartment and he's been living there for like 20 years. He was just full of stuff. You know, I would characterize him as fairly disorganized. Sorry, Tim. And, you know, we went in there and nothing was boxed. It was just a bunch of loose, random stuff in a cluttered apartment. And if I had thought for one sec, you know, I, I was literally saying out loud to myself, don't think, just move. Don't think, just move. Don't think, just move. Because if I sat down to try and like organize the stuff or put together a box or I'd still be there. But instead, I just filled up my two hands with whatever I could carry and I brought it out to the grass outside because there was a, a big, steep, unco- you know, bad staircase. So you just grab some stuff, run downstairs, put it on the grass, go back up, grab some stuff, run downstairs, put it on the grass. And then I was like, Tim, you stand here and you either move this to the trash pile, the Salvation Army pile, or the move to your new house pile. And if I thought and didn't just act, I, like I said, I'd still be in there. It was like a million things. And you know what? Two hours later, we were done. <laughs> There's a book I'll put in the pics. It basically talks about tidying up, which is kind of like the, you know, decluttering is the, the US term. And the process for it is, is like grab everything of a certain type, grab it all, put it in one place. That's step one. And then step two is to go through each item and decide what you want to do with it. Like, you know, like you said, trash it, donate it, keep it. Instead of like, I'm going to start in my kitchen and grab a few things and oh, look, I need to, to fix this drawer. Oh, I got to do this and, you know, basically get distracted. I did this twice now. I did it on my clothes and basically got rid of half my clothes. This weekend, I did it on my books, like physical books. And I have basically half of my entire book collection is on the floor to get um, sold back or donated away. And these are books that I've already gone through twice trying to like decide if I want to keep it. So like breaking it out and making like a process structure around it and just kind of, you know, forcing yourself through a process actually does a lot more than you think. Yeah, having a system makes a big difference. And then if you internalize the system and you, then it's just, it's something that you actually do without thinking about. 
you're just doing the overall thing. You don't have to worry about which step you're going to do next. You just do it. And in my case, a lot of times I internalize the process by delegating it. And so my process is, you know, tell so-and-so it's ready. But I mean, whatever you have to do, it just, it makes a ton of sense. And then it cleans a lot of this up. And even if you have to delegate some of this work for, you know, something like I get an email from my client that says, oh, I want this feature. And you have a process for it that says evaluate the feature, figure out if it's in scope, figure out, you know, what the trade-offs are for the client and then reply. You can even put it in your to-do list or delegate that to your assistant so that they put that information into your to-do list and schedule a time on your calendar. But whatever it is to trigger you to get it done and get it done right and do the next thing in the process. If you can automate that, be that by habit or by system or by having somebody else do it, it makes a lot of sense. Automate by habit because that counts. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, you sit down at your desk, you know, and so you automate checking your email or doing whatever else you're supposed to do first. By the way, email should be really low priority, so you might want to be doing something else first, but whatever it is. Yeah, and that's the basis of getting things done. You know, yep. like David Allen talks about, it's you have processes and systems. You know, you you have an inbox, whether it's your email or like a, a physical inbox or a pile of stuff is what I call mine now. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a process of going through it. Like it's, you pick something up, can you do it in two minutes? It's probably worthwhile just to do it. If you can't, it needs to go someplace trusted and you have a separate process you run at a different time to process that. And like for me, what I'll do is the client sends me an email and it's like a neat, a nice feature. I'll typically reply back with, Hey, sh- it should just go into this week. Is it important or should we just put it into the pile and we'll look at it later for like a, you know, another week? And if it's a later pile, I have a process I throw it in my PM system and then we'll come back, do all the scoping, do all the stuff you talked about, Chuck. But I know like, okay, that email is now out of this area. I don't have to deal with it. And if it is like an urgent, we have to do it this week. I'll still put it into that other process, but I'll execute that, that second process right away on it. It's like for web developers, it's exactly like job queuing. Yep. So you're like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can execute this request and immediately return the HTML to the person who requested it, or they just uploaded 20 images and I'm going to have to get back to them. So what do you do? You put it in a job queue so that the server doesn't lock up and so that their browser session doesn't lock up. And yeah. that's what we're talking about. So you don't lock up. Put it in a queue somewhere that you trust and you check regularly. Well, yeah, and when you do that, send, have send a message to the client telling them, hey, we put these 20 items into your queue. You know, that's your yeah. communication. And the other thing is, is that it's all event driven, right? So the event is there's an image that needs to be resized or reworked or whatever. And so, again, it's back to that habitual trigger. So you set up that trigger so that it'll set off that particular queue, be that, you know, somebody else or yourself. Oh, you guys are so organized. I'm so jealous. I mean, these things, these are clearly things that people can do that you didn't, like, you weren't born doing them. But, I mean, I've gotten better. I've gotten better over the years of having a to-do list. I've gotten better even in the last two weeks. I've really been good about getting stuff out of my inbox. But, I mean, I feel like I always need, know what I need to do next, which is good. But, like, the queue is just very, very long. Perhaps not as long as Eric's. But the queue is long, and to some degree, <laughs> to some degree, I just can't imagine like adding a process in there, even though that's probably the smart and right thing to do. Well, like let's be honest, Ruben. Like you have a process; it's an informal one. It's probably an ad hoc one, and you know, truth be told, it's probably a very inefficient one. If you looked at mm-hmm. what you're doing now, you could be like, "Oh, forehead slap!" Like I can optimize this and that and this and that. Because we all—I don't remember the study or the statistics—but it's like a very significant percentage of the stuff you do every day is a habit or routine. It's like 70 or 80%. So like we might think like, oh, we're, we're working on, you know, these different things every day. 
we're actually just doing the same habit process that we have. We just haven't actually recognized and linked like, oh, I'm just doing the, I'm sitting down at my computer starting my day process, which is involved in these 16 different habits. But if you actually kind of can step back and look at, you know, some of the more, I guess the more impactful, like you could see, you know, places to change or optimize or, you know, actually like, oh, this habit's actually causing negative effects on me, but I didn't really realize that until I looked at it. Fair enough. Right. So it's not a matter of having systems, it's a matter of changing the systems that I have or identifying them and improving them. Yep. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's a big part of, you know, how you manage multiple projects, whether it's client or your own, you know, I call them internal projects, you know, is if you, if you have a very inefficient set of processes and systems for, you know, you and your business, you're not going to get as much done versus if you have it, you know, you, you finally tuned your, you know, your client services business, uh, all the processes around that you're going to be able to get more done without hitting that overwhelm layer and kind of running into the, okay, now I'm broken out of a habit. I got to use my very limited cognitive resources to figure out what to do next. Right. Yeah. I mean, what's the, uh, there's like a, a quote that made the rounds recently about how Barack Obama wears the same thing all the time. So he doesn't have to make that decision every day. You know, the uniform. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The because, Steve Jobs turtleneck. Yeah. That's, that's who yeah. I heard do it before. I don't know if I buy that, but it does make your life easier. And you have to imagine that maybe that does result in more cognitive energy for things that are actually important, more important than deciding which pair of brown shoes to wear. Yeah, I think I think the way I heard it with Barack Obama was like picking which tie to wear or something where, you know, somebody sets out his wardrobe and he just doesn't have to make the decision. This is mom, I think. <laughs> it's a school day, Barack. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a White House day. <laughs> the science behind it backs it up. It's the cognitive resources we use for making decisions and all of that. Like it's all the same pool that we're drawing from. So especially if you have to do a lot of problem solving or creative work, which I believe Barack has to do a little bit of that in his job. You know, if he can get even like a half a percentage point just by not worrying about his wardrobe, like that could be an improvement. You know, the science for it works, but I don't know if it actually has, it's never going to prove it, but it's ever been you know, kind of linking like, yes, wearing the same thing every day does actually have a productivity impact. Um, but there's there's other things that, you know, in studies that have kind of proven a link, causal link or something like that. Eric, I'm so going to use that the next time my family complains about how I dress, right? I don't want the cognitive load of having to think about how I dress. <laughs> this is giving me extra productivity. <laughs> I you, don't have time to pick which pair of socks to wear under my Tevas. <laughs> okay, you, want, you want an instant fight with your significant other? Tell them, I don't care what restaurant we go to, it's below me. <laughs> Not that I've said it that way, but I've said something and accidentally phrased it into that vein. Yeah, that, that was not a fun dinner. <laughs> Quit complaining I mean, about what like I'm wearing. So what if I pulled two shirts out and put one on my bottom half? Yeah, I mean, it, but if you think about it, like if in life in general, if a decision is really not going to hurt you, like it's it's not a significant thing, it's easy to reverse there's low risk in it, you shouldn't waste a lot of energy or even time on it. Like if it's like, I work at home, should I wear a black polo or a blue polo? I don't care. What's the one that's closest to my hand right now? That's the one I grab. Yeah, I have a stack of about 10 black V-neck t-shirts. Even my five-year-old, I didn't even realize I did it. And then the other day, my five-year-old was like, daddy always wears a black shirt. I was like, yeah, I guess I do. (laughs) Just grab the top one. Here we go. Day starts. Yeah, I, I am so not going to choosing choosing my shirts and that doesn't go over so well. <laughs> my, my my girl my teenage girls especially are like 
really? That's how you choose what you're going to wear? Whatever's well, so on the top of the so, drawer? So here's what you do to please everybody. You let them pick your outfit, you buy 12 of them, and you're done. Yeah, I don't know if that would do much better, but at least they'd be making fun of a different thing. I mean, honestly, for probably two years, all I wore was black polos and Levi's. You know, and obviously underwear and socks don't even get there, but like, <laughs> that was my, quote, uniform. Um, I was worried there. I had, like, I can't trail run commando. I trail one about socks on, but that's a different podcast. Um, but I mean, I have a blue one and a green one, but that's just because my wife wanted some colors for if we go out or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I mean, my black ones are now turning like gray. So like my uniform is now gray polos and holy Levi's. But it's easy because I can just go to the store, buy another six, you know, brand new Levi's of my size, bring them home, you know, and I'm done. Like it's all, all, all good. And I don't have to worry about what the styles are. You know, should I wear a button up? Should I wear this or that? And polos are, they're comfortable for me. They, you know, they look nice enough for the client meetings I would ever go to. And, you know, that's all I need. And I could focus on, you know, the more important stuff and because I'm never on camera. It's not really that big of a deal. Well, at least we solved our fashion problem. And now I know why I get so tired whenever we have to pick a restaurant. <laughs> Honey, you Actually, make the decision. All right, do you want to go to Olive Garden? No. Do you want to go to Five Guys? No. This is my wife. No. I don't feel like Five Guys. And so, yeah, ten restaurants down the list. <sighs> okay, we'll just pick one. Yeah, it's it's strange. What is it? Rob Walling calls it like the brain glucose or something like that. And, you know, if you have a very light day work-wise, it'd be easier to pick a restaurant. Or, you know, it's like a Friday night date night. Pick the restaurant in the morning when you have the energy. You know, spend the five minutes, talk about it, get it done. And then, you know, yeah, your work's going to suffer that, you know, five milliliters of glucose. But if that's the important thing that day. So this seems like kind of a tangent, but we were talking about not getting overwhelmed, which stemmed from managing multiple client projects at the same time. So it all makes sense. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> And for the lone listener who's remaining. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of want to just dissect a little bit the question, too, and that is, how do you manage multiple contracts or projects? What are they really concerned about? Are they afraid they're going to get overwhelmed? Are they going to afraid that they're not going to know what to do next? Or is there something else there that we just haven't discussed yet? I don't know if it was obvious to me before this conversation, but it is obvious to me now, which is that getting overwhelmed. And what we've been talking about is how to not get overwhelmed. And it doesn't have to be multiple client projects, I suppose, but it probably is for people in the audience. It probably is like, you know, you have go through a dry spell and then all of a sudden you get a whole bunch of leads and all of a sudden they are looks like they're all going to land and I want to take them all even though I don't know how I'm going to do it all because I got to make hay while the sun shines. And, you know, so you end up getting overwhelmed and how do you deal with being overwhelmed? But there's a, maybe a side topic of how do you even out your workload year round? which is, I guess, a, probably another show. But I guess I'm the one that suggested this topic in the first place, and really it probably should have been how to prevent yourself from getting overwhelmed with client work. Yep. And sometimes the answer is saying no to stuff. I don't have time. I can't do it right now. You're going to have to wait a while. Whatever. Right. Absolutely. Better to turn away a client and say, I'm not going to be able to service you the way you need than to say, oh, yeah, I can help you also. And then everyone gets upset. It's so easy to say that, but when your mortgage is due and they've got a check, oof. that could be make a good a good show topic. How to even out your your workload year round. All right, anything else to attack on this? One last little thing. I mean, just to, Jonathan mentioned earlier that he uses his calendar to sort of keep track of things, and I've definitely definitely found that my calendar is my. You know, what we're talking about. We mentioned tools earlier. I hadn't thought about it. My calendar is my main tool. 
it ensures that I can block off time for things and I can look at it and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to have time to do X. I'm not going to have time to do X. Or, oh, my God, I'm going to be overwhelmed that week. At least I sort of know it in advance. And so I've definitely started using my calendar. I mean, it's been a few years now, but my calendar sort of runs my life and I'm very dependent on it, but it also allows me to, that's my process. I put things on the calendar and then I know, okay, that's why I'm going to work for things. If I don't have time to help people, then I just tell them. And that's definitely uh, been helpful as opposed to, well, I think I can squeeze it in and then discovering that I can't. Yeah. And then I also, like I said before, I make good use of my calendar and make sure that I can fit everything in. And if something has to fall off, then I have to figure out if it's critical or not. And right. if no matter what I do, I have critical stuff falling off, then I know that I'm oversubscribed and I need to reevaluate what I'm doing. Yeah. And just like what we talked about, like the project management tools, I barely use my calendar. My calendar is for meetings I have to go to. And then I'll use blocks like for a week of like scheduling work or scheduling like different internal projects. But other than that, I rarely use my calendar. My calendar is like appointments only. It's not for tasks. All right. Well, should we go ahead and do some picks? Sure. Yes, sir. All right. Eric, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah. So I got three today. First, I'll talk about that book. It is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. The target reader for this is, I think it's like the single Japanese female, but I read it with kind of, I had a couple of people in business circles recommend it. And so I read it in the kind of the context of business. And it's very interesting. Like I'm, I'm using the principles just to kind of clean up our house, but looking at it as far as processes. And if you look at her as she's a consultant who, who does this tidying up or teaches people how to do it, um, there's a lot you can glean from it as far as like how you build like a way to train your clients into doing what they need to do. And like, you know, kind of how you can, there's actually like one whole chapter. I think like it almost read like a sales page. It's like, what if I don't know how to do this? Well, you do this. What if I have this feeling? Well, this is why you shouldn't feel like that. It's pretty interesting if you kind of get above the, you know, like reading between the lines and all that. Next thing, um, this is a uh, blog by Philip Morgan. It's three content marketing ideas for the time constrained dev shop. Um, Philip Morgan's been doing a lot of writing on content marketing recently, and these three ideas are great. I actually do two of the three, and one of them I've tried kind of to a lesser extent here and there. Um, it's really good, especially if you are trying to do content marketing, just to make sure you don't like run out of work in six months, but you're so busy with client work. Um, this is a nice way to kind of work around that. And then third pick is get high value clients with social media. It's an interesting article. Once again, if you kind of read in between the lines, you can kind of see how like the story of someone gets started. They have a marketable skill, but they don't actually have like an authority position. They're kind of just like a generalist. And how over time they can kind of build up like their name, their authority, their brand, and then kind of start dictating what customers they want to work with. I always love these kind of stories because, you know, I went through a similar path and it's interesting that like different people in different things doing different services all kind of do the same kind of upward trajectory with it. So that's it for this week. All right. Jonathan, do you have some picks for us? I do. I've got two picks. One is that Android Wear was recently announced for iOS. So this is probably a little random, but people may or may not know that I absolutely love smartwatches. And it's uh, exciting to see Android Wear, which is a really, really nice software platform for a watch-style wearable, is now cross-platform. 
basically. I mean, iOS and Android is basically the entire mobile platform right now. So it's really cool that Wear is now cross-platform. And Pebble, which is my previous favorite, or actually, you know, they're both great. But a big weakness of Android Wear was that I couldn't use it with an iPhone. And now I can, so I can switch phones freely and still use wear the same watch. So if folks are into smartwatches, keep your eyes peeled. The new iOS-compatible Android Wear's initially only going to be supported on newer models, but I'm sure the Android community will hack it and make it work on older models too. So I was pretty excited about that news. Also, I will mention Calendly because it's so on topic for the episode. Calendly is something that allows you to send a link to somebody who wants to have a meeting with you and gives them a really nice, responsive web interface for picking a time in your calendar. And it's just unbelievable. It saves that back and forth time about, you know, like, oh, well, here are three times I'm available. And they're like, oh, I'm not available any of those times. And it's just really irritating back and forth email conversation to have Calendly solved all of that. I probably picked it before, but since it's so on topic for this episode, I wanted to pick it again. And then finally, uh, I'm going to be speaking at the uh, Brennan Dunn's Double Your Freelancing Conference in Norfolk, Virginia on September 16th through 18th. I'll be there for the whole conference. And if you use uh, this offer code I'm about to give you, you get 15% off if you're going to be in Norfolk, Virginia during September. Uh, so that URL, I'm sure we'll put it in the show notes, but it's bit.ly slash dyf dash js for double your freelance dash Jonathan Stark. And I hope to see you there. Very nice. Yeah. Reuven said he really wanted to go, but the dates don't work for him. And yeah, that's just too close to us having a baby here. So they are selling. I think he decided finally to sell videos of each yes. video of the whole conference. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. It, it, he, he wasn't going to do that. He just sent an email. I think it was a few days ago before our recording, saying that if you can't make it, you can pay a hundred dollars for the videos, and if enough people pay for them, then he'll sell it. I'll see if I can find. I don't know if you're supposed to publicize the link. If if we can, if we are supposed to, then we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, I find it really hard to believe that he will not be able to sell enough to make it worthwhile. Yeah, that just sounds awesome to me. Of course, I think the real value in a conference like that is going and rubbing shoulders and meeting people, but if you can't do that... Right, right. I mean, look, it's, it's in, what, what dates is it again, uh, Jonathan? It's like uh, 16th, September 16th? 17th, and 18th of September. It's yeah, so it's oh, like... September, not November. Not so, a couple weeks. So, so yeah, just a couple weeks. All right, Reuven, do you have some picks? Yeah, I got some picks. So, um, as frequent listeners know, I go to China a lot. I'm into Chinese stuff and Chinese. And when you go to China, their big messaging app is this thing called WeChat. So first of all, WeChat is just a really cool chat program. It has some interesting features, very interesting features. Second of all, if you go to China and you have WeChat already installed, they will just think the world of you. Oh my God. I mean, I have heard this from multiple people. Oh my God, you have WeChat. You are so Chinese. Now, I installed it on my phone, right? This means nothing culturally, <laughs> linguistically, but they're very impressed if you have it there. So it's definitely worth a lot. Anyway, the folks at Anderson uh, Horowitz, the uh, venture capitalists and general uh, rich people, wrote an interesting, or someone on their staff, Connie Chan, wrote an interesting article called When One App Rules Them All, The Case of WeChat and Mobile in China. It is a fascinating article, partly because it describes this huge, I mean, I knew it was big, but I didn't realize how big, this unbelievably huge ecosystem for WeChat in China. Yes, people use it for groups, and they use it for businesses, and they use it for individual chats. I mean, I'm on a, a group chat for Ruby programmers in Shanghai. Why? Because before I traveled there, I was put on it, and it's great for practicing my Chinese reading. But it turns out there are like 
I'm guessing hundreds of thousands of millions of these different groups set up, but you can also pay your um, utility bills and you can do person to person transfers and on, on and on. It's like fascinating what you can do. And I would say half to two thirds of the functionality that they describe in this article, I had no idea even existed. It might not exist for non-Chinese people. So I definitely think it's worth reading this, seeing where mobile is going or could be going um, and learning about that. A uh, second thing is, I just discovered this recently, it might not be new for the rest of you, when I was in high school, went to this Broadway show of these uh, relatively new and up-and-coming magicians known as Penn and Teller. So they're a little more famous nowadays, and they have this uh, show that's been on for a few years that I had no idea about called Fool Us. Now, I'm not a big fan of reality shows, even though I said a few weeks ago that I've been enjoying Shark Tank. But um, it turns out this is like a reality show where magicians come up and they say they do a trick, and Penn and Teller try to figure out how they did it. And I found it to be both entertaining and fascinating and just like a lot of fun. So you can find a lot of episodes on YouTube. That's where I've been watching it. And Fool Us is uh, just sort of a lot of fun, especially for someone like me who at the age of, I don't know, seven or eight, took a ton of magic books out of the library, was convinced that I could do it, and I was just so abysmally bad at even the most simple things. So I'm sort of in awe by people who are able to do that. And the third thing is I'll just mention, I mentioned this last week on our live Q&A show, but I am definitely ramping up this training coaching program. Uh, I've got a few people that I've spoken to who are really interested in starting. We're probably going to start around October 1st with a handful of people, and I'm hoping to grow that over time. Um, I'm going to put the URL in the show notes. I'm moving my website in the next week or two. Uh, as soon as I can figure out DNS stuff, long story, I'll put the URL in the show notes, and if that changes, we'll change to the show notes as well. But if people are interested in doing technical training, if you're interested in learning how to do it, if you're interested in improving, if you're interested in making more money doing it, and believe me, there's a lot of money to be made doing it, I will be happy to guide you through any and all parts of that, and we'll have a little group going, and we'll all help each other using a combination of what I've learned, and what I've learned uh, both uh, like practically and in my uh, education PhD program. We'll do like a whole mishmash of stuff. Anyway, I will talk to you guys. Well, I guess I'll pass back to Chuck. <laughs> I'm not signing off here. It's not my podcast. Chuck. <laughs> well, I just won't do any picks, and then we'll be <laughs> fine. Uh, no, so I've got a couple of picks. First one, I want to back the pick for Calendly. I've mentioned this on the show before, but I am talking to podcast listeners, and if you want to get 15 minutes of my time over Skype, you can do that at Calendly is how I have it set up. If you go to freelancershow.com slash 15 minutes, that's one five minutes, then it will forward you to Calendly and you can pick a time on my schedule. If you don't see any free times, it's because I'm booked out about two or three weeks at this point and then intermittently after that, and it'll let you book out for a couple of months. So go get a spot um, and then hop on and, and tell me what you think. I'm getting some really great feedback on the various podcasts, and I love figuring out who's out there on the other end and getting a good idea of what you care about and who you are and where you come from and, and what makes this show kind of awesome for you. And so I'm going to pick that. The other thing that I want to pick is, so this last week we talked to Sonny Bunnell. I think we just released that episode last week. That episode was so awesome, and I've still been thinking about the way that I want to approach the various things I do business-wise and podcast-wise and stuff from that episode. So I know we have a few listeners that just listen to the episodes where it's just us, and I want to tell you that that episode, I think, really nailed it. So go check that one out. And those are my picks. All right, well, I think that's it. So uh, we'll wrap up, and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.
Would you like to join the conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash form. 